1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Dave Thompson to talk Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, and the birth of electronic dance music. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Dave Thompson to talk about his book "I Feel Love," Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, and how they reinvented music. Dave, welcome back. Thank you
2: for having me. Good
0: it's always always a treat. And this book, this you packed a lot of information into a pretty small space in this book. We're not going to get to cover anywhere. You know, maybe a <laughs> tiny fraction of what you get to in this book. But and, and sometimes, you know, I ask you why you wrote this book or whatever. But with this one, this song is so big and so epic. I don't have to ask you why you wrote it. In fact, I'm almost tempted to ask
2: you, why didn't you write this book sooner? Um, quick answer is because I could never interest anybody in it. I've been walking around for years saying, I want to write a book about I feel love. And they say, well, oh, good for you. And finally, finally, I found an agent who seemed sort of interested in it. And I I don't often work with agents, but I did for this. And it ended up going to a publisher that I'd worked with for years and had never mentioned it to. (laughs) 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 Very stupid story. My own stupidity that it didn't come out sooner, I think.
0: Well, it did come out and it's very valuable. And so thank you for being persistent on that one. And you put it in a very select group of songs that you say that changed everything. And the two songs that that you flag as absolutely meeting that criteria are Heartbreak Hotel and Rapper's Delight and I Feel Love and then two maybes, The Bird's Mr. Tambourine Man and Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit. Explain the hierarchy there and why you didn't include Anarchy in the UK or David Bowie's Starman.
2: Um, Because, okay, Heartbreak Hotel, I mean, I wasn't around at that time. I don't think you were either. Um, But old timers will sit around the fire. So I remember the first time I heard Heartbreak Hotel and they all get very very excited about it and in fact i was listening to cliff richard's autobiography on audio um during this uh i guess the summer that i was writing the book and he was talking about it and cliff's book is amazing because he is the most enthusiastic reader I have ever heard. He takes you back to the moment and just draws you into the excitement that he was feeling. And the way he was describing Heartbreak Hotel, I've heard it from other people, but he was just like, yeah, that's got to be the song. Rapper's Delight because, I mean, it did invent hip hop for the mainstream, I think. Um, Can't argue. Mr. Tambourine Man, I can't stand it, but a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people I know um who are into sort of that kind of West Coast folk rock say that you know that was the moment where Dylan stopped being the guy who sang through his nose and became sort of a top a top forty contender just by writing that song and it smells like teen spirit I mean I think it altered things immeasurably but a lot of people disagree and i didn't want to get into a fight with them
0: (laughs) that makes sense now and why did you disqualify anarchy in the uk and starman
2: anarchy because punk rock and starman actually falls into this as well it wasn't anarchy or starman that made the difference it was the image that accompanied them Bowie, quite frankly, could have turned up singing Ten Green Bottles, but as long as he'd dressed like that, looked like that, sounded like that, and put his arm around Mick Ronson's shoulder when they were on top of the Pops, it would still have happened. Because Starman itself is basically somewhere over the rainbow.
0: It's got that interval in it, for sure.
2: Yeah. And Anarchy, you know, great record. I think it's one of the, one of the all time wonderful forty fives. But again, the pistols could have done ten green bottles, and as long as they'd gone on to telly and sworn and you know, upset the tabloids in the UK, yeah, you know, it would have made the same impact.
0: I can't argue. And now tell us how why and how I feel love fits into that rarefied company.
2: Because we would had electro mu- electronic music for years. I mean, I trace it back in chart terms. You know, things like Popcorn and Son of My Father. There'd been records with you know moves in them and synths, but it, uh, Crazy Horses by the Osmonds. But they, it was always as... An ad, it was almost an adjunct to the song because the song could go along quite happily and then the synth would come in and go... Wah! And people say, "Wow, what's that?" and be really startled by it. And then Craftwork came along with Autobahn, which was a huge hit here and in the UK. And I mean, in Britain, we just thought of it as Doctor Who music. Now, loved it, but it was, you know, it was Doctor Who music. You couldn't really dance to it. You couldn't do much to it. In fact, you just sort of sat there and went fun, 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 like the Beach Boys. Um, I feel love. On the other hand, actually took all those instruments, or all those electronic instruments, and made them do something beyond make noises and whoosh. It's, you know, it's a big joke. First thing everybody learns to play on a synthesizer is the intro to Silver Machine by Hawkwind. You know that wind sound. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that's what synths were. Or Keith Emerson, you know, just making insane noises across ELP records. But the serious you know, heavy work was down to the organ and just conventional keyboards. This, there was nothing conventional on there at all. Yet you could dance to it. You could do all manner of things to it. And it was just, I remember first hearing it. I was working in a record shop at the time and the rep from GTO Records came in and said, oh, New Donna summer and everybody groaned. But he said, no, I ought to play it to you. And he played it and everybody in the shop was like, what is this and i you know i've never seen that i'd never actually seen that before that happened before where you know the most jaded i've worked in a record shop since 1957 i've never seen that happen where they just stop and look at one another whether they liked it or not it was just one of those moments
0: and you've got a quote in the book from Brian Eno to David Bowie, who were working together in Berlin at that point. And Eno tells Bowie, this, this record, I Feel Love, will change the sound of club music for the next 15 years. As it turns yeah. out, he was off the mark because it's changed the sound of club music for the next 40 years.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone could actually perceive of you know, a, sing, a simple pop record lasting that long, because when you think even Heartbreak Hotel was only 20 years old at that point and, you know, Elvis was now dead and, you know, you didn't really hear it so much and the nostalgia hadn't kicked in. Um, So for him, or for the two of them, I think music was still, yeah, not ephemeral, but it was still of the moment. Whereas with another 40 years on top of it, we see that music can make an eternal, well, eternal, um, a long, long time difference. Yeah, great records are in there for the long haul.
0: Yeah, it, it really seems like history has been telescoping, and maybe it's just you and I getting older. But but um, it's it's also speak for,
2: your... speak for yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You you've got the fountain of youth there, in Delaware. But um, but let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this this is going to seem kind of like a curveball, but we'll connect it when we come back. This is Jane Birkin and, and Serge Gainsbourg doing Je from 1969. Sarah Scanesberg with Jane Birkin doing Jatem, and originally that was going to be Brigitte Bardot instead of a uh, Jane Birkin, but there were uh, complications. And I picked this out because you you identify six big trends, and I want sp- to talk about spend most of this episode talking about these six trends that
2: led you to know, you. You just wanted to play a dirty, dirty record on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm doing the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you identify six trends that lead to I Feel Love, and one of them starts with this song and what you called the lush orchestration of a dirty French pop song. Talk about the sort of micro-tradition that starts with this song, builds up through songs like Jungle Fever, Pellow Talk, Fancy's version of Wild Thing, and lead to Donna Summer's first hit record, which is not I Feel Love, but Love to Love You Baby
2: um but well, donna summer herself said that she wanted to write a, rec- a write a song like jetem um and she had i think she had the title basically and you know george enmorella was ah, oh, that is wonderful in an italian accent which i can't do um it, it and basically it was just this very underground tradition of let's make a record that sounds like preferably a female having sex and see if we can get away with it. And it was often... Jungle Fever, I always think, they they weren't thinking in those terms. They just said, this is a great sounding groove and, yeah, we got the girl being orgasmic over it. And they thought it was just dance record and somebody released it as a single over here. And people went crazy for it. Um, And it became... I guess it was something of a bête noir for radio programmers because you had that, you had, you know, Pillow Talk. Um, Fancy's Wild Thing, I think, was a little more exaggerated and almost comical. But it was still a great squelchy record. And all these things were just building up. So when Donna Summer came along, so these other ones, they'd all been three minutes long. You couldn't really get anything going in three minutes. So she did it for 17 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> a more comprehensive statement. And there's this great story of Neil Bogart at the U.S. label. You know, he was given the the acetate or, yeah, a tape of it. And, um, you know, he didn't really pay any attention to it. And then it, it got put on sort of by accident at a party. And... You know, the party just sort of stopped and everybody was looking at one another like, what is this? And then they started dancing and every so often someone would jog the turntable and the needle would go back to the beginning. And the entire party was love to love you, baby. It just <laughs> so took
0: over the dance
2: floor. <laughs> three hours of it, like Sting and his tantric business. <laughs>
0: Fortunately, Sting was still teaching young girls at public school at this point in history. Um, and, so the- <laughs> and I do want to mention also that Sylvia of Talk is none none other than the Sylvia of Mickey and Sylvia, which-, which had some massive hits in the 50s. And then she goes on to be the queen of Sugar Hill Records and puts out Rapper's Delight. So Sylvia probably pops up in more episodes of this show than any other single figure, just absolutely um, (laughs) pivotal uh, figure across three different eras of music. And the next wave or the next trend, what? let me quote you here you say half a dozen unique and unrelated elements suddenly crossed one another at precisely the same moment and what and this is what happened when they touched or i feel love is what happened when they touched and so we talked about uh, the dirty french pop songs and now the next category is what you call the stark adventuring of electronic music give us a quick capsule of the key moments of electronic music that lead to i feel love
2: well, we kind of touched on that already with Son of My Father, um, which was a hit in the UK for Chicory Tip, but over here was actually a hit for Giorgio Moroder. Um, so he'd been, he'd been using electronics in his own music for quite a time. Um, but that was the one that brought him to sort of worldwide attention. Um, and I think it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. Electronics were, in mainstream terms, were funny noises. Um, there was a lot going on sort of in art circles where I mean, people <clears throat> people always, you know people would just find these like really strange albums of electronic sound effects or electronic noises joe meek who was a great british producer had you know his moment with them so there was a lot of a lot of love for it in corners that Mainstream radio and magazines really didn't look, but it was burbling up. Eno came along with Roxy Music and then on his own and made it even more palatable. So there was, in a way, Giorgio just sort of looked around at everybody else using electronic music and thought, right, I'm gonna do something that they have never seen before, which was a true electronic dance record. But yeah, trying to get them. Tob Rundgren uh, quote in the book, saying that you know, he used to go to like this little record shop in the market in like I guess the late fifties, early sixties, and pick up these funny albums that had really great covers, and they always seemed to be electronic.
0: <laughs> and a lot of crazy albums were coming out, and and some of them even had sexual elements, or concept albums about astrology. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you sent me back to I Container Turner to listen to Nutbush, Nutbush City Limits, which has this crazy synthesizer solo. Yeah. You know, Brian Eno not only had his Roxy Music albums, but this weird, weird album he did with Robert Fripp called No Pussyfooting, which is, they're just yep. playing with sequencers and and guitar solo, you know, Eno would just... Set up some sound going in a circle, and Fripp would play off that and, you know, would record it and bring it back. But then there's also Krautrock, which, of course, is a scene that Kraftwerk came out of. But there's, you know, sort of two wings of it. There's Tangerine Dream, which is also very electronic, but in this prog sense, you know, you've got the great Connie Plank producing all kinds of records. Um, you've got Cannes, uh, Popol Vuh, Amandul, too. Um, and yet, Marauder's right there in Munich. What was his relationship to, Kraut, to Krautrock, or did he have one? He didn't,
2: he didn't really have one. Um, I mean, Krautrock is such a misnomer in a way because none of those bands really sounded the same or were looking in the same direction. You know, Kraftwerk, who Kraftwerk, uh, this sort of beautifully romantic 1920s Europe, kind of feel tangerine dream who were just so spacey uh and Dool, who were a wonderful clattering noise can who were so experimental and you can just go through the list and i don't know if you've ever picked up any of those the well, best of crop rock compilations but you play them and it, it's like 20 different bands doing 20 different things there was no there was no, not really any middle ground apart from you know, their passports. And I also, go ahead. And you know, and I always found it interesting that a lot of the bands didn't really rely or even use electronics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like now, was this, was the original rhythm section, guitars and drummer for Kraftwerk, got booted when yeah. they decided to go electronic, and and made very hypnotic, very prophetic music but wasn't electronic at all. So yeah, it's it's definitely relevant to our story here and Giorgio Moroder, but it's interesting that he was there in the country just on his own personal path. And let's hear um, one of his early hits. And this is the one you mentioned, Son of My Father, which was a, a hit in England for Chicory Tip, but it was a cover of Giorgio's song, which broke here in the States in his own version. So this is Giorgio's version of Son of My Father. That was Son of My Father by Giorgio, not the Chicory Tip version, which was the hit in the UK. But yeah, this is uh, definitely a song that sort of lays the groundwork and that it prepares people's ears to hear synthesizers in pop records, which people like The Who and Stevie Wonder and Ike Turner and uh, Kraftwerk, obviously, and Tangerine Dream were doing as well. So there's, but but it's not till I Feel Love that it all gets put together into dance music, which brings us to our third big factor, which you call the party before the bomb drop hedonism of disco. Tell us a little bit about disco and how Marauder and Donna Summer come to be part of that narrative.
2: Well, I think, I mean, disco of all musical genres has got sort of the baddest rap of any of them because you mention it and all people think of is Saturday Night Fever, and you know some of the terrors that were unleashed in the wake of that but before that i mean through the early 70s there was a very livid disco scene in this country and a a very underground struggling to find an identity but still very exciting scene in the uk which of course is the one that i was sort of running into Sort of in my teenage peregrinations. Um, and it wasn't about polyester suits and mirror balls and things. You never saw such things. It was just about music that made you very sweaty and excited. And as, as such, it was actually a very subversive movement because there was a large gay community and there was a large, just sort of anti-social community as well. And a lot of the punks were going to, you know, the first wave British punks were going to discos before punk came along, because that's really all there was if you didn't want to go and see a band. You'd go to a disco and you would hear, you know, anything from, you know, James Brown to Phila to... Sort of sixties, old sixties classics. I think just anything, as long as it got people dancing and got them sort of pumped up, it could it could survive on the dance floor. And I feel Love came along at an interesting time because Saturday Night Fever had all well, it was happening. The BGS were having you know the first hits from the soundtrack. Um, we are getting things like Fifth of Beethoven and some fairly dire stuff was coming out and everyone was like, oh, disco is breaking. And that came along and people who liked early discos <laughs> could suddenly love, I, you know, they could love I Feel Love and it's like there was still hope for dance music. Um, what was interesting is the majority of people who picked up on it tended to be sort of, white suburban kids who were so bored with already bored with playing punk and went out and bought their own synthesizers so yeah so on and so forth
0: yeah it's it's fascinating to me you know i did a whole series on uh last night of dj saved my life and this And I'd never understood disco before. I'd always like gone to the Motown records or gone to the Gamble and Huff records. And I'd studied, you know, what went on in the studios in Philadelphia and Detroit and who was the session bands and who were the producers and what were the songs. And it's all great stuff. It's very important music. But what was really happening was it was clubs where the DJs took control and changed the music by the way they played the records. And so I had no idea that, you know, it started in 68 or 69 and that, You know, by 1970, you had somebody mixing Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love with a Santana or a Chicago song, uh, you know, or or imagine, you know, reading about what they did. They were playing Inigata DeVita by Iron Butterfly for Dance Floors, which is just, you know, uh, absolutely mind expanding, goes through this whole thing with, with The Loft and David Mancuso and all these different. Creative DJ, so that by the time Neil Burgart gets his uh, Coke powdered hands on Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder, you know, the the pump is absolutely primed. But talk a little bit about Love to Love You, Baby, and how Giorgio and Donna came together and came to do that song. What was she doing in Germany in the first place?
3: She was in,
2: oh, I'm going to forget. She was in Hair, I believe. Yes. And Godspell. And Godspell, the German productions thereof. Um, but she wanted to be a singer and, um, I mean, basically a friend introduced her to Maroda. He was looking for, um, he was looking for new voices, I think was what he said, and was pretty much holding open auditions. So she went, she went down there and he said, well, you know, what can you do? So she sang a few songs from Hair. And then you know, he asked for more. and She did a few more, just show tunes. And he was like, yeah, okay, let's you know do stuff. And they've done they've done what three or four singles I think before I Feel Love came along. And when you play them back now, I mean they're great little records. It's not Donna Summer, it's not really Giorgio Moroder, um, but there was one that's called The Hostage which is basically a woman bemoaning the fact that her husband has been kidnapped and um, he gets killed by the kidnappers. And they released this at a time when the uh, Bader-Meinhof group was sort of at one of its peaks in Germany running around kidnapping people. (laughs) (laughs) were <laughs> quite surprised when the <laughs> when radio didn't like it too much um, there was Denver Dream and uh, there was uh, Lady of the Night you, know, you can imagine what that's about um, so they were making these very very off the wall peculiar little singles and I think yeah and an album as well also called Lady of the Night which you play them back now and it's like this is Donna Summer but the lead from or the you know, the path from them to love you, love, to love you, baby is you can see. Yeah, they've got something coming that is going to be quite monumental. And you know, let's face it, nobody had ever released you know seventeen minutes of sex on record before, at least outside of you know, certain gentlemen's record clubs, and. The album was basically the world's first 12-inch single because you bought it for Love to Love You Baby. And then you flipped it over and there was you know three or four songs that were yeah, they're okay. But the A-side was Love to Love You Baby, so it was just an expensive 12-inch single.
0: And tell us about the 12-inch single because that's another one of your six things, the rise of the 12-inch single. W- when did this format start? Why did it come out? What niche did it
2: fill? Um, it was for the discos. Um, you know, they wanted longer songs. Um, and, you know, some dance records at the time, you know, as, you know, as always happens, you'll hear a song and think, God, I wish that was, you know, like five minutes longer and various, you know, there was various attempts to get going with 12 inch singles Getting around was it 73, 74. Um, but there was a gentleman named Tom Moulton who was a remixer who was highly in, you know, instrumental in bringing the Tommy single onto the market. And you'd have run into him because his remix is for Gamble and Huff when you were doing your Philly International thing.
0: Yeah, he's, um, he's a big deal and and apparently the f- reason he did a 12-inch was just because they were out of plates for 7-inches at the pressing yeah. plant he went to the first time. So
2: it took yeah. it took a minute to um catch a, on as a commercial yeah. format. Yeah, I mean the first I mean the first 12-inch singles were not were not great. I mean the first one I ever ran into I think was Daddy Cool by Boney M um who were another German act. And it wasn't even extended. It was, you know, just the regular seven-inch version on a 12-inch single, which you know felt a bit of a cheat because they cost twice as much. But when yeah, you played it, the sound quality was so much better. And you know, the record really came alive. You could almost get that disco feel in your one you know, in your studio flat. If you turned it up loud enough.
0: Yeah, that's um, why I spent years chasing down PIL's metal box because I was I had heard somebody playing the 12 inch versions and the bass was so much louder than my little second edition uh you know yeah. thirty three RPM version. The the bass response in these twelve inch singles was just so powerful. And this was also really the first form of- at, that did come out of the record companies. This was driven by the DJs and then the fans. And let's take a quick yeah. break and hear from our sponsors. And we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about 12 Inches, but also the three other factors that fed into I Feel Love. And so this twelve inch thing. I mean, Neil Bogart actually nobody had had it in mind to put "Love to Love You Baby" out as a twelve inch until Neil Bogart. That wasn't even a seventeen minute song until Neil Bogart said, "You got to make this thing longer," and and padded it out. So it's something you know that he saw in his own personal disco when he was having a party for his friends. And once it hit the disco floors, you could definitely see, you know, some of the first DJs could stretch two forty five, you know, seven inch forty fives out into ten minutes, but it's a lot easier just to give the DJ a twelve inch and and let him take a seventeen minute break. Um, you know, yeah. and so this format acts absolutely becomes critical to not just this era, but the 12 inch is gonna go all the way uh, through the next seven, you know, cycles of dance music, high energy, house music, techno, all this stuff, uh hip hop are all built on twelve inch singles so that big bass response and the much, much longer um Playing time, but then the the next category you get into is the fall of high synthesizer prices. Tell us a little bit about the state of synthesizers in 1977, and how it had already changed quite a bit from you know when George Harrison and other people like that had their first Moog synthesizers in the late 60s. <laughs>
2: Excuse me. Um, they because w- synthesizers to begin with were. I mean they were absurdly expensive and they were just and they were just absurd, they were huge. You needed, you know, pickup trucks to carry, you know, a fleet of pickup trucks to carry a good one around. Uh when you watch the ELP tour and they've got those three huge articulated lorries full of gear, probably one of them was just holding synthesizers. Um they were so huge. But then around the mid seventies yeah as with all electronic things, they started to become more compact they've got they they're getting smaller and smaller, and the prices began to come down. But the game changer was this little thing called the wasp, which was black and yellow um, how big was it? It was probably you know, 18 inches by 9 inches or so. I mean, it was tiny and it couldn't be much and they wouldn't stay in tune. Um, you know, you hear stories and I actually saw it once, a band would come on stage and they'd have their wasp and they'd have it sitting there waiting for its big moment and it would start playing itself because the humidity <laughs> in the room <laughs> just <laughs> got inside it'd just sit there bleeping and burbling to itself and I saw this one band, they actually sort of just sat sat there like joined the audience and watched The Wasp do its own gig. (laughs) Um, But if you got one that was behaving itself and you kept it sort of dry and flat and comfortable and you didn't blow smoke or drip beer on it, um, even an idiot like me could play the wind effect off Silver Machine on it. And you know make other sort of little burbly noises, but some people actually got very adept with it, so it started they started turning up more and more on records and shows, so more and people more and more people were getting interested and as that took off, other prices came down and all the i mean the whole thing about punk was do it yourself, but you know how much of it are you doing yourself when you've had to go out and buy you know guitar drums, bass, microphones, et cetera? When you could just you know, hop down the road, get a synth and sit in your room and go meek, meek, meek with it, figure out what you had to press to get what sound and do everything on your own. And I feel love immeasurably helped towards that because that was, Todd Rundgren again in the book says, first time he heard it, it's like, what, they've released the noises that I make in my bedroom. And, okay, yeah, maybe he was exaggerating a little, but there was that feeling that, get a sense, you could make I Feel Love. And And, now that you get a fourth sense. And
0: a lot of people start doing it. And there's a guy that you mentioned that I'd never heard of before that you call the unsung hero of the track, Robbie Vettel. I'm assuming he was German, W-E-D-E-L. And you talk about... How difficult it was to synchronize the click track at drum machine with the Moog and how they had to record the song in very short segments, like there wasn't computer memory. it wasn't like doing an auto uh auto tune thing or, or you know uh like audacity i guess you know where you just drop in a clip of of here's my three minute drum beat pop that in here's here's my synth loop i'll I'll set that to repeat. They had to manually go in there and make these sounds over and over and then the baseline actually there's a delay on the baseline that's not quite perfectly synced that actually really enhances the magic of that talk through a little bit of that i don't quite understand the technology it was the moog modular 3p but how did that work
2: um to be honest i don't know (laughs) um Electronic instruments are a mystery to me. I mean, they fascinate me, but I've never actually sat down to figure out how they do this. It's like, they do it. You know, it's like somebody who's really good at you know, playing drums. It's like, how do you do that? Ah, very least drum, you hit something. But yeah, I haven't got a clue how it works. The technical stuff is you know, very above my head. And I've got a friend in the UK um, he's quoted in the book Mel Wesson who is very very adept uh, synth player keyboard player and he sat there and patiently tried to explain this to me and he was just like your mouth is moving and sounds are coming out what are you saying
0: <laughs> sounds like some of my piano lessons um... yeah <laughs> 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 I, but, uh, yeah, I had that with the uh, harmonic inversion. I had a teacher who tried to teach me what a harmonic inversion was about 40 times. I never, I do remember the name of it, but I have no idea, no idea what it was. And you, you brought in the, the, the sixth element here, which was the nihilistic purging of punk rock. How does that tie in with I Feel Love?
2: Well, as I was saying, you know, punk was DIY. Um, it was, yeah, you know, a bunch of kids who wanted to put together a band and let's play our favorite band songs and they stick on the new Yes album and it's 14 sides of Tales of Topographic Oceans. And they oh, we can't play this. You know, we're 15. We don't know how to play this. So they'd make their own noise, and that became yeah, you know, the the key for an entire generation to also make their own noise but you're still using conventional instruments, which are expensive. So then it comes back to synthesizers, not as expensive as a regular band and very different. And I mean, that mentality grew out of punk, just wanting to strip everything away, strip everything back, um, get rid of you know all these horse-headed progressive musicians who you know, spent four hours to tune a drum um, and just make a basic noise that you could do and that anyone else could do. So it wasn't even, you know, learn three chords, find three friends, you've got a band. It was learn to press three buttons and you are a band.
0: Off and running. And let's hear a little bit of Donna Summer. This is Love to Love You Baby. And that was Donna Summers' Love to Love You, Baby, which was her first major disco hit uh, produced by Giorgio Moroder. And you'd think that that would have pointed them in the direction of I Feel Love. But they actually spent quite a bit of time hunting for that follow-up hit. She had a couple that did all right, but nothing that was the mega hit to follow up Love to Love You, Baby— what were their peregrinations there, and how did they sort of stumble across I Feel Love? What were they trying to do when they made I Feel Love?
2: Well, I mean, I think the thing with, with the two of them at that time is they knew they were a good team. You know, he knew he was a brilliant producer. He knew she was a great singer. But they they just weren't coming up with the material that they deserved. So... Yeah, you know, they, they were putting out things because the record company was saying, you know, you've got to put out follow up. You've got to put out something else. Um, and then Giorgio had the idea of the I Remember Yesterday album, which was a history of popular music across two sides of vinyl. And, you know, they had done, you know, they did successive decades and he wanted something for the future. And. Obviously, he thought the future was going to be electronic because that's what he'd been working with for so long. And it grew from that. It, he didn't even see it as that special a piece of music. And what's really funny is when it was first released from the album, it was the B-side to, um, can't we just sit down and talk it over? They stuck it on the B-side.
0: Yeah, that's just an absolute classic. And it's also funny to me that the concept album idea was the exact same one that Roger McGuinn had when they started doing, when the birds started doing Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And obviously, Grant Parsons took that in a different direction. But this idea of we're going to do a history of pop music and, and, you know, 12 songs. Uh, wasn't even an original idea, but it shows you just how you can take the same idea and go in such radically, radically different directions. And another thing that I hadn't thought of until I read this book was, even though when we talk about Britain in 1977 musically, it's punk, 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 punk. But that's not really what was happening on the ground or on the radio in Britain at the time. What was actually dominating the pop scene in Britain in 1977? Um, Disgust.
2: And um, it was, it was a funny old year, actually, uh, 77. And so I was working in a record shop for most of it and punk. And um, beginning of the year, you had the damn single, you had the pistols. And that was pretty much it. And then slowly bands would come out. You know, Stranglers came along the adverts, stiff records, which was a pub rock label started to pay attention. Um, but a lot of what we, you know, what we were putting into our, or I was putting into the punk box that we had on the counter was, it was basically pub rock bands, the handful of punks who've got a record out, and things that we were getting from this wonderful little import shop in West London. Uh, you know, I would just go through their catalog, find 10 strange sounding things from America. And ordered them into the shop. So we had bands like the Bizarro's and Perubo, Early Talking Heads, I think, were in there. I mean, it was just like this stuff that nobody really knew what it was. just liked the name. So it was disco. It was pop. um, A few old rockers. ELP had their biggest ever hit, UK hit, in 1977. That is so Um, crazy. Uh, That was fantastic for the common man. Uh, Who else? I think Genesis had a hit. Yeah, had another hit. Um, Okay. It was yes. Even yes had a hit single. Um, I mean, and let's you know, let's be honest. Going for the uh, going for the one was probably the most awake they had sounded in ten years. (laughs) But because it had that sort of really wild guitar on it um but yeah it was a year when anything could be a huge hit there was a lot of novelty records around and punk just sort of it slipped in there and it wasn't really until the end of the year when there were more punk bands and they were starting to get following outside of a club in london that you started to see them more and more on television and more and more on the charts but you know they were still I mean it was still you know lower top twenty stuff for the most part, you know, maybe a band would get into the top ten, you know number ones until the Boontown Rats came along was you know arguably the pistols alone, and then the jam took off, but the jam weren't really a punk band by that time,
0: yeah more of a so, mod uh, band,
2: yeah, well, they didn't sort of progress out of that they you know they'd become. dry run for what paul weller was doing later
0: (laughs) yeah
3: yeah i mean very
2: very listening
0: to thin lizzie and bruce springsteen and telling these story songs and and stuff but let's get back to 77 because there are two big albums that come out that i think in retrospect seem like the true companion pieces to i feel love and i'm talking about craftworks trans europe express which was i guess their third major album um, after Audubon broke them internationally, and also David Bowie's *Low*, produced by Brian Eno. Talk about those two things and how they interacted with I Feel Love in the popular consciousness. Because really, to me, if you take... Those two albums, and I feel love, mix them up in a big vat, and you've got the 80s, you've got high energy, you've got synth pop, um, <laughs> you've got house music, uh, you've got post-punk. It's it's all right there in those three things. And by yeah. this point, we know that Bowie and Eno were paying attention to what Marauder was doing. We know that Marauder was paying attention to what Kraftwerk was doing. Was Kraftwerk paying attention to what anybody else was doing?
2: I doubt it. <laughs> they've never been the sort of band that paid attention to anything. Yeah, like, oh, let's release Autobahn as a single. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean yeah, Bowie and Eno you know, were paying attention, but the the key thing to remember there is low had already already come out. They were working on heroes at the time. Low, they came up with at the end of '76. That was released January '77, I think. So, you know, things like Sound and Vision, and that was that was the big hit, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Sound and Vision, you know, was you know, effectively a great electronic record, but because it was Bowie, you didn't really look at it like that. You know, you, put, you flip over to side two of low and you're back to electronics making noises. But side one of that album, where it's just those short, sharp, sort of electronic, but rock, heavy rock songs, um, was perfectly in keeping with what we were saying about, you know, punk, punk's looking towards synthesizers. I mean, that was probably the first thing that tipped them off. Yeah, and then Craftwork came along, and again that was a game changer. Because I remember again in the record shop, EMI rep comes in, got the new Craftwork album here, and, it was, and it, oh, it's really funny. Listen to this track, it's called Metal on Metal, and they're banging metal on metal, and you know, everyone's sitting there, ho oh, oh, ho oh, ho, this is so funny. Um, but for sort of, younger people it was you know something never heard this before um that was a, that whole album used to be played you know in breaks at punk gigs you know first band would finish on would come the craftwork album you know until the next band came out so um yeah i i feel love had had the I suppose in a way you could say those two records paved the way for I Feel Love in as much as they interest, they attracted that more left-field audience. So that when I Feel Love came along, it wasn't just a weird disco record. It was more electronics doing even better things than ever before. So there was this lovely synchronicity at work there. Whether it would have been as huge without those two albums is impossible to say. I kind of suspect it would have been. But they certainly opened ears to it that might not otherwise have paid attention to a Donna Summer record.
0: Yeah, to me it's like the, the combination of those records. And another thing I learned in this book that I had no idea is that David Bowie's record company essentially rejected Lowe. They said you can release this, but it's not going to count – uh, towards your contract it's not going to count as an album so they essentially got that album for free and then it puts out yeah. hit singles like sound and vision i mean <laughs> i hope he got a pound of flesh back out of them after that but to me yeah like what you say it laid the groundwork and it got all these hipsters thinking people like midge er and the future members of the human league who were obviously paying attention to what was going on in punk and trying to be in that punk scene but then they hear David Bowie and Eno and Kraftwerk, and then with Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder, they can see that you can go in a lot of directions with this electronic stuff, and that's and that's where it leads us into the future. But let's hear "I Feel Love." This is Donna Summer's "I Feel Love." Summers, I feel love, produced by Giorgio Moroder, the song that has inspired this entire book and conversation. And there's two things I want to get in the in the 10 minutes or so we have left, and that's the sort of a quick summary of the rest of Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder's career, and then a little bit about how high-energy synth-pop and house came out of this and and where they went and what trends you think were most directly inspired by I Feel Love. So tell us first about Donna Summer and and how she followed up I Feel Love.
2: No, I just want to tell one final story about I Feel Love's impact. By all
3: means.
2: Um, It's one of my favorite stories in the book is uh, the guys who are simple minds were in a band called Johnny and the Self Abusers at the time. And they were waiting for a gig in some little club in Glasgow. And the DJ stuck his head around the corner and said, okay, you're on in X minutes. I'm going to play one more song. And he played I Feel Love. And the band just all sort of looked at one another and they broke up immediately after the show and formed Simple Minds. <laughs> they
0: threw in the Purely towel immediately.
2: Purely <laughs> because of that record. They, you know, We've got to get a synthesizer. That's where we're going. And I think more than any other story, that just sums up that record's importance or impact. Yeah, because...
0: Um, go ahead. No, Karen. Well, I, I just want to say, because so many people talk about, you know, British punk rock, that first wave of guitar rock, punk rock in 77 as this dead end. And and really, if you look at, at the bands, none of them really had a sustained career doing punk rock. Like you said, the jam moved away from it very quickly. The Clash, obviously, went in all kinds of directions. The Sex Pistols become PIL. And, and other bands find the synth pop direction, which is clearly, I feel, love. I think, along with Lowe and what Kraftwerk were doing, it showed people a way out of the box that it sort of painted themselves into with punk rock.
2: I mean, follow the course of the Boomtown Rats. You know, first album was very, very punk rock, looking after number one, et cetera. Already by the second album, they were doing things like like clockwork, um, which, you know, the big joke was like craftwork. And (laughs) they just became sort of vaster and vaster thereafter and never, ever looked back at punk rock. And I think the Boomtown Rats are one of the great underestimated bands of the early 80s for my sins
3: yeah they're <laughs> definitely
0: it, not not one you're hearing a lot about i think sir bob Geldof's charity work has has kind of outshined i'll, I'll take a look back at the boomtown rats i don't think i've listened to yeah. them since the early
2: 80s um they did on
0: your recommendation
2: couple, they did a comeback album a couple of years ago and it was really good. It was as good as the specials comeback album. Hmm.
0: That's pretty high praise because yeah. that specials record was quite good. But it, yeah, it, it it wasn't just the punkers though. Another figure that, that you talk about quite a bit who's clearly um influenced by this is Robert Fripp. And I didn't uh, know that Robert Fripp was trying very hard to record with Blondie through this period. Tell us about that and why it never came together.
2: Uh he was working on his her first solo album, you know, the one that became Exposed, uh, Exposure, sorry, and he wanted to cover I Feel Love with Debbie Harry singing, and the label said no, her label said no, um, and I think they probably realized that was a very foolish decision because Fripp used to guest with Blondie on occasional shows, and they do I Feel Love, and sure enough, it turned up on a B-side. A couple of years later, so um there was probably a degree of oh we shouldn't really have done that because it it would have been brilliant a a bit. Frick, yeah, um it could have been a sensational record, but no no, record company politics, you can't have our superstar been very silly yeah and fri uh, I mean, Frippl never really sort of followed up that idea. Yeah, you know, he never made the great disco record that he was probably capable of at that time, which may may yeah. not be a good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a record I definitely would like to here, but I think that that I feel I've definitely pushed Blondie or made cleared the path for um, Heart of Glass in a very big way, and definitely yeah. uh, Blondie ends up, you know, collaborating with Giorgio Moroder. On a call oh, Me from yeah. the American Gigolo soundtrack which is one of the great synth disco hits of all time but what did Donna Summer do? How did she follow up I Feel Love?
2: She just kept on getting bigger and bigger didn't she? Um, I, I mean she never made another record that was that earth shaking you know, and never did another Love to Love You Baby I always felt that she was very much underplaying her abilities. It almost sounds... I mean, some of her records, I mean, it sounded like she was phoning them in. Like, you know, the soundtrack... uh, Was it the song from the Deep movie? Was it Deep Down Inside? It's like, yeah, you can do better than that. And she and Maroda were obviously feeling the same way because, you know, they had their breakup in the early 80s. Um you know record company hated the album they were working on started sticking her with sort of famous producers who had a big hit with so and so you know you should work with them um and her career as i say got bigger and bigger so you know who are we to knock it but i think she could have been a far more important figure if she had been allowed more control and if record companies didn't keep sticking their noses in. <sighs> it's
0: it's an oft-repeated tale. But then again, you know, Elvis never matched um, Heartbreak Hotel or never did anything as apocal as Heartbreak Hotel. No. You know, Sugar Hill Gang it, obviously it, never came close to Rapper's Delight. Again, Sex Pistols arguably never matched Anarchy in the UK. So, you know, no shame in only reaching Everest the one time. But uh, well, I think those, I, a couple of those later I, Donna I, Summer Marauder albums are quite good, though.
2: I was never. I think I was so so biased towards Love to Love You, Baby, and I feel love because I'd say you know she or they were one of the few teams actually conquered Everest twice. Because Love to Love You, spectacular piece of work as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean the later albums, I'd hear them. I I don't think I actually owned any of them.
0: Those are the ones I started with. My big sister had, I think, Bad Girls, and and, um, I ended up working my way backward. But I do remember vividly being about nine or ten years old and being hypnotized by um, Love to Love You Baby and my mom running in and taking it off the (laughs) turntable.
2: And that's what you want records to do. That's what records should do.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, they should
2: Frighten the parents and, and
0: tillate the children. So, um, yeah. my guest has been Dave Thompson. The book is I Feel Love, Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, and How They re-in- Reinvented Music. And Dave, looking forward to having you back real soon to talk about Cream. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. A couple of weeks, isn't it? Indeed. So, thank you very much.
1: Okay. Thanks very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at LetItRollcast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Next week, Dave Thompson returns to talk about Cream, Rock's first heavy rock supergroup with host Nate Wilcox. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.